Morning. I thought we'd just uh, spice things up a little bit this morning with some uh, questions and some prizes. When, when I speak on ski holidays, Christian ski holidays or walking holidays, then, then we have uh, all sorts of uh, questions with uh, prizes. I thought we'd just get into our subject this morning with uh, one or two questions. And, and the prizes are there, as you see, lined up along the... Uh, they're very valuable prizes. It was just as I was preparing this, I noticed I had some left over from March's ski strip on the shelf beside me, and I thought, they're gonna go off if I wait till next winter. So, you know, and I can't eat them. I'm going to the dentist on Wednesday. So the first question is, who is the lady on the screen? And Alan, you were the first hand up, but have you got the right answer? My wife's assistant who looks after her shoe room. No, Imelda Marcos. Imelda Marcos is the correct answer. Okay, the second question is, this lady was the first lady of a particular country for many, many years. Simon was the first hand. Has he got the answer right? Argentina. Argentina is the wrong answer. Philippines. The Philippines was the correct answer. And here we're talking about shoes this morning, thinking about shoes. So here is the major prize question. At the height of her collecting, how many pairs of shoes did Amelda Marcos, first lady of the Philippines, have in her collection? Mark. 2,000 is too low. Janet, 4,000 is too high. Oh, Jeff, 3,000 is the right answer. A big hand for Jeff. That's very good. I wonder, I wonder how many shoes you've got in your collection. We won't have a little competition and see who's got the, uh, these will go back in my pocket. We won't see who's got the, uh, the most shoes in the uh, congregation here this morning, but, but I need to confess to having rather a lot of shoes, probably more than I should. Why? Because I walk a lot, and here's what happens. I tend to buy shoes with an almost indestructible sole, and within a relatively short time, the uppers give way. But I don't throw those shoes out. I hang on to them. I hang on to They'll do for gardening. They'll do for dog walking. I'm sure I could seal them with super glue. And Ruth will tell you, in the cupboard under our stairs, we've got far too many of my shoes. And in the garden shed, and in the motorhome, all over the place, these shoes that actually are past their best, but they passed their best too soon. And last year, I thought I'd solved my problem. I bought a pair of shoes from Clark's with Gore-Tex uppers, waterproof, and an apparently good sole. They were certainly waterproof until very recently the seams started to come away. But the soles have just worn away. Well, actually, the heels worn right through, and you cannot repair them. What a mess. This week, I think I've cracked it. I've ordered yet another model. These have a biblical name, Moab. And I thought, if they've got a biblical name, Moab, and my wife's name is Ruth, and Ruth was a Moabitess, I thought there's some connections here until I discovered what Moab actually stands for in Merrill Shoes. Does anybody know what Moab stands for? I do have some sweets left in my pocket. Well, listen and learn. Moab stands for the mother of all boots. <laughs> So it's not biblical at all. Uh, and when they come tomorrow or the day after, 
I might find that once again I bought the wrong thing or else the right thing is just not available. Having the right shoes for the right task is important. So I've got running shoes, I've got ski boots, and I've even got some formal shoes for funerals and weddings, and these are the ones that last the longest because they are not worn very often. But some of my favorites over the years have been walking sandals, and I've seen some walking sandals in church this morning on, on the gentleman. I wear them barefoot, of course, no socks, and I'm pleased to see that you do this morning too. And I choose rugged soles, but what happens with them is it's the smell that becomes overpowering long before they wear out. Where am I going with all this? Well, the Roman soldier would wear the first century equivalent to those walking sandals. First century equivalent. A good sole was essential. Hobnails to grip any surface and to keep one's balance in the face of combat. That's the important line, to keep one's balance, to keep one's grip in the face of combat. They were tightly strapped around the foot so that they didn't slip off, but also so nothing could slip between the footbed and the instep. And much as I love walking sandals, they do have a nasty habit of collecting small stones between the footbed and my foot, and I have to stop to empty them all too often. That wouldn't do for a Roman soldier. The Roman soldier would have to have his sandals so tight that not a little bit of grit could get between his feet and the footbed of those sandals, or he would be thrown off his purpose. He would lose his grip. He would lose his balance. One time I was in Thailand, I was wearing flip-flop type footwear, was in this sort of ornamental bird park, and I got a branch of a thorn bush caught in the gap between my flip-flop and my foot, and it was sore. I ended up as an outpatient at the Manorham Christian Hospital. So after that, I reserved flip-flops for the beach or the swimming pool. You've got to wear the right footwear for the right occasion. And the Roman soldier didn't wear flip-flops. That sandal was so firmly strapped to the foot that nothing could slip in and out and cause discomfort. Now, as uh, Mark hinted a little bit earlier on, particularly for those of you who are visiting, we're partway through a series of talks on the whole armor of God. The Apostle Paul makes no bones about it. Christians are in a spiritual battle. We've got a spiritual enemy, the devil, and he's devious and he fights dirty. And yet God has provided us with a virtual suit of armor to protect us from every specific attack of the devil. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the belt of truth, which holds everything together. Last week, Richard spoke about the breastplate of righteousness, which protects our heart. And today, we look at the shoes, which are described as the shoes of the gospel of peace. Here's the verse from Ephesians 6, 15, that we base our thinking on today. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of of peace. It's a curious expression. We're told to put on the belt. We're told to put on the breastplate. Later we'll be told to put on the helmet. But here we read, your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. My kids used to go to the Clark shoe shop to be fitted with their school shoes. People familiar with that? 
Did any of you ever go and get your feet kitted out? That means you must be very young if that facility was available to you. It was an annual ritual. The immediate reward was a pencil with the shoe shop's name on it. And yet the more I've been thinking about it, this exercise, unlike the pencil, was pretty pointless. Because kids' feet grow. So what's the point of getting them fitted scientifically and technically for shoes that they're going to grow out of in just a few weeks or even months? It makes more sense for adults to be fitted for appropriate footwear. So I went to a specialist shop in Shrewsbury to be fitted with running shoes that matched my gait. I had to run on a treadmill and was shown a video of the way in which my feet touched the ground and I was fitted with the appropriate shoes which actually need to be replaced currently. <laughs> I, I bought a bike from Holford's once, you know, and I checked it out with somebody else who had the same bike and they said, it's fine, yeah, it's good. It, it makes sense. It wasn't that expensive, but I, I bought the bike and after a few months, there were bits wearing out on it, the bottom bracket and so on. And I took it back to Holford's and said, can you repair this under guarantee? And they said, no. I said, why not? They said, you've used it too much. Crazy. And, and, and that can happen with our shoes as well. Use them too much, people might say. Ski boots are even more complicated. You can buy those which feel comfortable, which I did 11 years ago, and going strong, or you can go through the rigmarole of standing in molten resin so that the boot fits the profile of your foot precisely. But when we think of the footwear of our protective armor, the sandals are to be fitted, they're to be made to measure, they're to match you and your specific needs. You remember the Old Testament story when David was going to face Goliath. David rejected Saul's armor because it wasn't made to measure for him, David. It would have been more of a hindrance than a help. So your feet have to be fitted. But what are they to be fitted with? The answer comes, the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The readiness is a strange expression. I think it connects with fitted. I think it means that your footwear should be fit for purpose. A few months ago, we visited Ruth's brother and family in Norfolk, and on the Saturday morning, we joined Ruth's brother and niece for a park run. But when we arrived at the venue, one time home of Anne Boleyn, when we arrived at the venue, Tim realized he'd left his running shoes at home. Undaunted, he ran in his everyday shoes. Remarkably, he completed the course, but they were not fit for purpose. He should have been wearing the proper footwear, and our spiritual footwear should be fit for purpose in the spiritual battle so that when we're attacked, we're not knocked over so that we keep our balance, and they're to be fitted with the gospel of peace. Now, many readers of the passage notice the word gospel and immediately assume that evangelism is represented in some shape or form. They make a, a connection with the exciting passage in Isaiah 52 verse 7, which says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. And certainly there's a connection with feet and a connection with peace here. The person with the beautiful feet proclaims peace. But the person of Isaiah 52 with beautiful feet is a messenger and not a soldier in a battle. 
We're in a spiritual battle with the devil. And the last thing we should do would be to proclaim peace to him. Uh, Satan, let's stop fighting. Let's, let's be friends. Let's make peace. I don't think so. With any other body, we might want to make peace, but not with Satan, not with the devil. We don't sing to Satan, peace to you. We bless you now in the name of the Prince of Peace. He's the one person that we would not sing those words to. So if we're not linking the shoes of the gospel of peace with the beautiful feet of the messenger in Isaiah, what are we linking them with? And I think we find the answer in one of the passages Tina read for us earlier, Philippians 4, 6 to 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Here we've got a connection with the suit of armor. The purpose of the shoes, these made-to-measure hobnailed sandals, is to guard your hearts and minds from being anxious. For when you're anxious, you lose perspective. When you're anxious, you lose your balance. And when the risen Christ met with the disciples in the upper room, when they were feeling pretty anxious, when they were feeling pretty out of perspective and out of balance, he gave them a special gift to keep them on track as he said, my peace I give you. So how does this work? How do we maintain our spiritual equilibrium? I want to suggest by pursuing peace at three levels. First of all, peace with God. Romans 5, 1 to 2 says this, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Truth is this, if we haven't got peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, then we're not even in the battle, for Satan is only interested in attacking those who have peace with God. So I ask you this morning, do you know peace with God? Have you been born again? Have you been adopted into his family? Because that's a necessary starting point. Unless you have peace with God, you're not in the fight, you are already defeated. And these shoes won't do you any good at all because no one is going to attack you. Peace with God is funda fundamental. But secondly, we can think of inward peace. Fear, anxiety, and tension can be used by Satan to throw us off balance. If we're worrying about other things, we're likely to be distracted from the task in hand. Now, this is nothing directly to do with the peace of God. I'm easily distracted. In fact, I would go to Vartus to say, I welcome distraction. No, more than that, I thrive on distraction. And so long as that distraction is put to use to learn new things, to explore things that I wouldn't even have thought of, that is fine. But in the context of spiritual conflict, I cannot afford to be distracted. I cannot afford to take my eye off the ball, as it were. When I lived in Scotland, I took young people to the annual Baptist Sports Day at Stirling University. And after all the fiercely 
fought team events and the serious athletic and swimming races, they had a sort of fun event, the open mile. It was open to all, no age restrictions. <laughs> One of our young folk from the church in Glasgow, Craig, must have been about 15 at the time. And he was quite a character. And as he came past where we were on the track, we all cheered him. And Craig goes, and he did a little pirouette, and he went flat on his face because he was distracted and his shoes didn't hold his grip. And he went flat on his face and out of the race. If we were to pick on another little bit of running analogy from the New Testament, from the book of Hebrews, he needed to keep his eyes ahead. And we mustn't be distracted from keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Distraction leads to loss of balance. And if we're protected by the peace of God, we're less likely to be unbalanced when the unexpected happens. We're less likely to panic. We can maintain our grip and we can keep our balance. And the third kind of peace that I was thinking about is very much what Mark was talking about a little bit earlier on. It's peace with others. Here's Andy Stanley from Atlanta. says, peace with God paves the way to peace with ourselves and equips us to make peace with others. Paul writes to the Romans, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's a pretty straightforward call peace with everyone it's a call which is particularly pertinent within the body of christ in john 17 jesus prays to his father and he prays for us my prayer is not for them alone that's the disciples i pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one father just as you are in me and i am in you may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Interestingly, or perhaps even significantly, Philippians 4 which says that the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus begins with an appeal to two women. One called Euodia and one called Syntyche. And the appeal is that they would get on with one another, to be of one mind in the Lord. Now, I've often heard preachers perhaps unfairly refer to these women as Euodius and Suntuchi, as if it was their particular personalities that were inherently disruptive that they were actually two very disagreeable women who could cause a fight in an empty house. But actually, they were two mature Christians who, valued, who Paul valued as having contended for the faith alongside him. They were part of the team, and yet even they were knocked off balance and out of sorts with one another. How can this be? I want to share with you a theory as to one way in which disruption in a fellowship can come about. It's something I first read about over 40 years ago, but somehow it's stuck in the back of my mind and it still makes sense to me today. How peace is shattered and the church becomes vulnerable to attack. Here's the picture. I want you to imagine Christian truth is a series of points from one to a hundred. And in the ideal situation, 
all of those truths are held in balance. However, in a certain period, some doctrines have been neglected, say, Numbers 41 to 50. And then someone rediscovers 41 to 50, and in their great enthusiasm for rediscovering what's been neglected, they go overboard with that teaching, so overboard that there's an imbalance, and members of the fellowship begin to fall out with one another. What's happened to Numbers 41 to 50 is this. They have become overwhelming. They've become the specialist subject or even the hobby horse of those who catch on and a degree of superiority creeps in as those who've rediscovered lost truth patronize the rest. You'll catch up. You'll understand one day. What, what am I talking about? To say I saw this back in the early 80s, in the early days of charismatic renewal in Scotland. Some who were touched by this move of the Spirit got secretive and subversive. Hey, come to this special meeting with us. Don't tell the pastor. He won't understand. And suspicion arises. Long-standing friendships are severed and Satan gains ground. The fellowship suffers because the feet of the members have not been fitted with the shoes of the gospel of peace and they are easily thrown off balance. And here's Satan's master strategy. He's not introduced false teaching because we needed to re-understand re and re-emphasize the doctrine of the Spirit. He's not introduced false teaching. He's simply encouraged members of a fellowship to fall out over the degree of emphasis that they've placed on a neglected area of truth. And the underemphasized 10% can take on a wide range of characteristics. For some people, it's the last days. For some people, it's the nation of Israel in God's purposes. For some people, it's social action or social justice as an integral part of the gospel. And in every case, there's an element of truth, if not a whole truth. But through our overemphasis of one set of doctrine, the whole lot is imbalanced and people divide into different camps and his infernal majesty's objective of church wrecking is successful. In some cases, the overemphasis of a doctrine can lead to heresy. For example, some who are obsessed with Israel as God's chosen argue that it's insulting to evangelize Jews. Some who have an emphasis on the imminent return of Christ can lead to a neglect of the kingdom of God on earth and our stewardship of creation. They would argue if it's all going to be destroyed, why should we look after it? An emphasis on social action can lead to a neglect of proclamation evangelism. Uncritical obsession with the things of the Spirit can lead us to an unhealthy and unbiblical prosperity teaching. Overplaying the power of God to heal can lead to devastating feelings of inadequacy when the healing doesn't happen. Let me tell you about James. James was a perfectly normal 11-year-old boy till he was beaten up at his earliest weeks and days at secondary school. This stimulated the emergence of the measles virus, which had been dormant in his body since infancy. He became very ill and was in what we might term a vegetative state for many months until his death as a young teenager. And some of our friends who overplayed the healing card insisted that the parents must have unconfessed sin in their lives, otherwise their son would have been healed. How cruel! Hitting the parents when they were down. Yes, God does heal 
We should pray for it expectantly, but healing does not occur in every situation. And sometimes God is with the family through the pain and healing comes through death of the sick person. Here is an example of balance. It's one that might be familiar to you. It, can, it, it actually uh, concerns word and spirit over the years. It's been said some Christians are so observed by the word of God that they rule out the possibility that God may do new things today things that are not explicitly mentioned in the Bible. Others are so caught up with the things of the Spirit that they neglect the Word of God and its check and balance on what's being experienced. What is it that people say? It's this. If we have the Word without the Spirit, we tend to dry up. If we have the Spirit without the Word, we tend to blow up. If we have the Word and the Spirit, we tend to grow up and get fired up. Amen. Biblical Christianity is balanced Christianity. So how do we anticipate this kind of situation in which a part of the truth is emphasized unduly? How do we ourselves avoid going overboard with an aspect of the truth which may have been neglected? The answers in our passage from Ephesians 6 today, we adopt footwear which will help us to keep balanced. For the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, and we will not be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. So what are you wearing on your feet this morning? I mean your spiritual feet. Is your footwear fit for purpose? Are you balanced? Have you got a grip on the full range of Christian truth? Are you allowing yourself to be distracted by your personal doctrinal hobby horse? A few weeks ago, I suggested that sacred cows make gourmet burgers. Actually, hobby horses make good firewood. So if you've got a hobby horse this morning and it's not leading to good places, what do I encourage you to think about doing this morning is let's have a bonfire. Let's put all our hobby horses on the bonfire and let's be one as we share biblical balance together as we wear the shoes of peace. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you that in the whole armor you've given us uh, items of clothing, items to were which cover every situation and circumstance. I thank you, Father, for the shoes of the gospel of peace. And I just pray, Father, that every one of us who knows you might be fitted with those shoes so that our feet are secure, that we have a grip, and that we don't lose perspective when Satan attacks us and whispers possibly in our ear. You're missing out on this. You're missing out on that. But actually, Father, help us not to miss out on you. Help us not to miss out on your Son, the Lord Jesus. Help us not to miss out on your Spirit and what you've sent him to do for us. Just help us to be balanced so that together, as well as individually, we may resist the attacks of the devil who wants to wreck not just our individual lives, but wants to wreck our church too. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.